Hello, good morning. Welcome to CIA Files. What what? What were you saying? I'm back. Good morning. Good good morning. morning. You're back. Yep. This is uh raw file news. Uh I am Topher M. Ford. That's Brandon Givens over there. Yeah, I'm on the other side of the world. Hello. All right, so how is uh, the other side of the world looking there? Uh, pretty good. Like the the tenge, the money, is starting to get a little stronger again. Um, Russia's like, oh, yeah, we'll go ahead and start, you know, exporting wheat to our to our neighbors. And uh, he kind of backed how off nice all of that. them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, so, yeah, the, well, I guess it, it, the local money is very connected to the ruble. They're not like... Uh, I don't, my understanding is they aren't directly tied, uh, but we're not economicists here. Yeah. Well, you know, it's just kind of like with those cryptocurrencies, they all follow Bitcoin and the (laughs) currencies around here all kind of follow the ruble. Um, Oh yeah. yeah, It's kind of like that, but yeah, pretty good. It's really warm, beautiful day. Um, Yeah. Cool. Well, we got a ton of news today, so uh, let's uh, get it. Uh, first up, we have humanitarian aid to Tigray. We mentioned last week that the Ethiopian government and the Tigray rebels had agreed to a ceasefire in order to allow humanitarian aid containing food and medical supplies to enter the affected region. The aid was slow to arrive, however, with rebels stating March 30th that the Ethiopian government had been making excuses to hold up deliveries. But the first trucks uh, arrived in Tigray on Friday, April 1st, uh, delivering the much-needed supplies to the war-torn region. Officials from the World Food Program in Ethiopia announced via Twitter Friday that trucks carrying 500 metric tons of food and supplies were on their way. Each side of the deadly conflict has blamed the other for the famine plaguing the Tigray region since December. The United Nations has accused the Ethiopian government of blocking humanitarian aid, while the government has accused the Tigray People's Liberation Front of using military attacks on roads that would be used to deliver the aid. So it's good um, that the people are finally able to get some food and other things they need. Yes, and uh, um, yep, we've this is a, a very it's, it's so sad. Like, we, we talk about uh combatants and non combatants and, and all these rules of war and uh terrorism versus a war crime, or I mean, they're, they're essentially the same, it's just who does it, but um, whether it's intentional or accidental, you have those issues and it's the civilian in war. It seems to the civilians die more than the soldiers, you know, or yeah. suffer more in, in many cases. Yeah. It's just, I guess not the intensity, the, that you might get in combat or this whole, like, Oh, at any moment I'm going to be blown up, but I don't know. I mean, in some of these places, yeah, even as a civilian, any moment. Yeah. And, and it, that, I mean, and I, I can't help but wonder, what's worse you know the fear of dying in combat or being starved to death you know and just sitting there not being able to do anything right right oh yeah and it becomes generational like we're learning more about epigenetics 
and you know how our bodies react to our environment and you know certain certain behaviors or tendencies might be activated by what's going on in our environment uh, you know like right. perhaps like schizophrenia and things such as that um right and just in general and, the the trauma that people experience whenever they get caught up in the middle of these things and we see this a lot it's something that we've been exploring in our proper episodes and you know with these uh different people who served in world war ii and witnessed atrocities and then went on to influence foreign policy and they're sort of keep perpetuating the trauma that they experienced in the war oh well let's see like generational right <laughs> generational abuse same sort of thing right. um so moving on to the situation in yemen uh saudi arabia enacts ceasefire in yemen despite the rebels rejection uh, the coalition of forces in Yemen, led by Saudi Arabia, enacted a unilateral ceasefire on Wednesday, March 30th, even though the opposing Houthi rebels rejected the terms of the ceasefire. This comes at the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. Houthi leaders refer, uh, sorry, Houthi leaders refuse to take part in ongoing peace talks because the talks are happening inside Saudi Arabia. Houthi leaders said they rejected the terms of the ceasefire due to Saudi Arabia's continued blockade of Yemen's air and seaports. On Wednesday, Houthi official Mohammed al-Bukhari tweeted, quote, If the blockade is not lifted, the declaration of the coalition of aggression to stop its military operations will be meaningless because the suffering of Yemenis as a result of the blockade is more severe than the war itself. Well, so it's just like what we were saying. Yeah, yeah it's the <laughs> yeah. same thing. Uh, the, the civilians caught in the middle who suffer because they can't get food, water, medical supplies. Um, Saudi Arabia is like, well, we're not going to we're not going to shoot at you for this month. We'll starve you. We'll starve right. your, your your children and, and non-soldiers. and Right. They're like, come on, be reasonable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, so doesn't sound like much of a ceasefire. Yeah, I can understand the Houthi position on that. Yeah. Um, of course, it's complicated, way more complicated than I'm able to fully understand. I don't, you know, claim that I know exactly what's going on and exactly who's in the right and who's in the wrong. But you're not supposed to no, admit that you're supposed to pretend you know everything. All the right, time. we are in we are in America. I did forget I'm <laughs> an American yeah. in Florida. I might add. So yeah, I what I meant to say was everybody's wrong and I'm right. And shut yeah. up and listen to me. Yeah. <laughs> but what, what I was going to say though is that no matter, I can't. There's no situation I believe where it's okay to blockade and starve people out. You know. So sure, yeah, a siege. I mean, yeah, that's the, my... it's like the, the entire nation is on siege and, um, yeah. Yeah. That's my hot take. It's wrong to starve people. Sorry. Don't cancel me. Um, another story, anonymous Twitter account translates Chinese discourse on the Ukraine war. Uh, 
an anonymous Twitter account is gaining a lot of attention across the world right now. Named the Great Translation Movement, the account is taking discourse on the war in Ukraine from various Chinese social media sources, translating the comments to English, and sharing it outside of China's Great Firewall. Uh, the comments show a generally sympathetic view to Russia and Vladimir Putin. They also contain widespread misinformation including a poll where the majority of participants believe that the war was started not by Russia and not by Ukraine, but by the United States. Uh, the Twitter account has only been posting for about a month, but it's already gained over 80,000 followers. Of course, not all of the attention has been positive. Chinese state media has complained, calling the account a smear campaign. Other critics have said that the relatively limited scope of the online posts translated and shared on the Twitter account aren't a reliable means of gauging overall Chinese opinions and beliefs. And I will say that yesterday when I went to go look at their official Twitter, their account was was still online, but Twitter did give me like a a warning or disclaimer before it let me actually view their account so <laughs> like a it makes warning. me yeah it was weird it was like a a warning that i hadn't seen before i don't remember exactly what it said but yeah it they were you know well there is there's a lot of um like the it kind of extreme nationalism and and china i mean well i mean they, they have that all over the world and they get their feelings hurt really easily. Um, they're kind of like that stereotype of the person that calls everybody a snowflake, but as soon as you say something that offends them, they get all, they all melt down. So I guess like an example I can give of that is like, uh, I think in Shanghai, there was like a, a sports team. I mean, they weren't in a, like a big official sports team, like a local or like, you know, league. And they were calling themselves like the Hitlers, and there were, you know, like a lot of foreigners who were said, you know, you really shouldn't call yourself the Hitlers. That's, you know, that was a pretty, pretty bad man. And they're like, oh, but he was a good leader and he was trying to help his people. And yeah, I mean, he lost the war, but he was trying to do what was what was good for his country. Hitler, the underdog. Right, right. And um, they, I mean, they ended up keeping the, the team name despite complaints, you know, like we're going to, you know, we, we've got the right to do this and which is incredibly, you know, ironic in a sense, because China has those um, like technically they have free speech, but the speech that they can control is anything that creates disharmony or upsets socialist values. So basically, if you hurt someone's feelings, then they can shut it down. And so they're like, we have free speech, but we don't. And just like they have free freedom of religion, but you have to go to the official ch one of the official churches and of the officially approved religions. But um, the but if you mentioned, well, we're going to name our team the Hero Hirohitos, and yeah, you know, like the after the. Um, Japanese emperor during World War II. I was like, what? No, that is so offensive. Uh, how could you ever think of doing that? That really hurts our feelings. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. What about the Hitlers? Yeah, uh, yeah. So it, that that's that's was kind of my observation of 
of Chinese nationalism are the people that do kind of have those opinions that they're saying the same things about Hitler that they are about Putin that they these particular this particular brand would say about Hitler like oh well, he's a good leader and he's you know he's trying to save his people from from an enemy that's out to destroy story them from within. Oh, Ukraine and Russia were, were good friends. And yeah, the Americans have just, just manipulated them and turned them against each other. And, and Putin's just, just trying to, trying to right those wrongs. And they're not getting all the information. So right. like, the Chinese media, I don't know that they're directly lying. Like when I watch um, the Chinese state television, it's usually not telling lies. It's just not telling everything. It's very selective about the information that gets out. Right. And do you, what do you know about like the spread of misinformation from non-state sources? You know, do they crack down on that or do they kind of just, uh, you know, let it slide? Well, it depends on how popular it gets. And I think it's uh, over a hundred and something thousand followers on like Weibo and that sort of thing. And then your account's automatically screened uh, for patriotism and such. And my understanding is like with uh, WeChat, they use algorithms. So like I could get on WeChat and message someone back and forth and, you know, like say bad things about the Chinese government and, Probably nothing's going to happen, um, but there might be a certain series of words that might get someone's attention. Um, right. But the big thing is if I actually had followers and start organizing that, a meeting, that's when they get really upset. That's when you start organizing meetings. <laughs> then, uh, that's when everybody gets really upset. <laughs> yeah. That's like... yeah. Um, all right. Well... We've got a little domestic news, and uh, Trump asks Putin for dirt on Hunter Biden. Of course, this is an ongoing thing, and he just is repeating himself. On Tuesday, March 29th, former President Donald Trump continued to push unsubstantiated rumors that President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, received $3.5 million from the wife of the former mayor of Moscow. In an interview with radical right-wing news show called just the news trump called on putin to release details of the alleged transaction uh, trump pushed this claim before the 2020 election saying it constituted a conflict of interest for the bidens of course ignoring his own mountain of conflicting interests via ties with russia uh, the call has drawn loads of criticism from both the left and the right but Trump, in his usual fashion, does not care. Oh, is that so, well? I, it works for him. Why would he? Why would he? Why would he admit that conspiring um, with a foreign <laughs> with a foreign leader who has apparently ordered an invasion and is um, allowing or not prosecuting soldiers for war crimes? Uh, I mean, what, yeah, why would he apologize for that? You know, I mean, yeah, the and people that are going to love him are going to love him no matter what. So, you know, yeah. he has no motivation to self-reflect or try to think hmm, perhaps perhaps this is this is wrong. And I do think yeah. I should mention the like the kind of elephant in the room 
the whole Joe Biden's laptop fiasco. I mean, with that, that Hunter Biden's. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hunter Biden's. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And the, my understanding of the story is that the post sat on it or um, whomever initially investigated, they, they, they reported on it, but then said it was non-confirmed, but then eventually it was confirmed and they sat on that for pretty long. And, and that's, that's not good. And, you know, I, I would like to go on record as saying that I am disappointed if they sat on that information. Um, yeah, I don't know if it would have had an effect on the election, just like that whole thing about, like, the Justice Department. Oh, we're investigating Hillary's emails again. And then 48 hours later, no, we're not. And it's like, oh, that could have, you know, turned the election. Whether or not Hunter Biden's, you know, crackhead pictures on his laptop um, were genuine, if that would have called the election away from from Joe, I don't know. Um, I still don't think it necessarily would have been worth, or I don't think it would have been worth um, hiding it because, you know, our democracy is going to live or die by its own merits of free speech and debate and openness and, you know, if our media does start deciding what they want us to see when it is absolutely <laughs> true. Oh, Brandon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, they just, they, they just made that decision. <laughs> well, yeah, it was just like, it's about China, you know, it's like they, they won't lie. They just won't say everything well yeah i'm sure they probably do have some misinformation uh, but their mode is more related to just leaving a lot of things out right that's what i mean yeah that they i you know i've had i've worked in journalism for a while now and i've had discussions and debates with other people and i think maybe we've talked about this a little bit it's something that i'd like to get into more uh, as we you know just in the future but they say you know who, okay well what news outlets do you trust what do you and i'm like <laughs> none of them i mean you have to like you have to get comfortable with being un, uh, with a certain level of uncertainty which people do not like and, you know, if if you put out the question there, what is two plus two? And then all the leading t- scientists come out and say, um, we've ran the research and we're pretty sure that two plus two equals four, but uh, we haven't locked that in yet. But then some loudmouth comes in and goes, that's bullshit. Two plus two equals seven. And I know it. People will listen to the loudmouth, even if it's obviously like wrong. If he's certain enough about it, people will fall, will go for that. And, you know, so when you read news outlets, especially, you know, like the major news outlets, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Fox News, CBS, what have you, they are nine times out of 10 telling the truth. Uh, it's 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 rare that and, and I'm leaving out commentators, especially with Fox News. 
But as <laughs> but far most, as actual, a lot of people don't know the difference. Yeah, well, like they, they don't know that they're We common. only have so much time. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. But I'm talking about news articles, actual hard news yeah. articles, as opposed to clowns on TV spewing their opinions. Um, but yeah, mo- most of the time they're they're telling the truth, but you have to understand that they also have an agenda. And so there's stuff that they could be leaving out. They might be leaving out content context or they might be revealing information because it it helps their agenda right and with scattered within that are are you know trustworthy journalists who are dedicated to telling the truth but they have to work within institutions with agendas you know so a hand, you know, a reporter who works for the New York Times is likely, you know, has integrity as a journalist. But the New York Times itself has stockholders, you know. And <laughs> right. So you just the thing with gauging uh, the accuracy of news and interpreting it within context is you have you have to remain skeptical, but not cynical. I would yeah. say, although that's harder and harder these days. Um, well, that, yeah, I'll usually say try to prove yourself wrong. Um, I mean, don't do it like kind of in a, a mean way, like uh-uh. no, in like the scientific a, way of you, <laughs> right. you yeah, test a, things to see if it. Yeah. yeah, it's like, well, what's the opposite? Well, not it doesn't necessarily have to be the opposite of this, but you know how how would we how would this not how can we show this not to be true? Yeah, and just right. kind of probe around. But yeah, there's this whole like fake skepticism. Like, oh, I, I don't, you know, I'm skeptical of this. I don't really believe it. And it's like, no, there's a, there's a difference in just being a contrarian and a skeptic. You know? Right. They're being, <laughs> they're being cynical and presenting it as some, you know, like a form of intelligence. Right. It's like, oh, yeah. I don't just accept everything. And it's like, oh, well, you know, it's, like, I, all you fools that believe that that's a moon in the sky, and really it's a big <laughs> right. mirror and a reflection. I'm not a sheeple like you. Like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah, there's a line between being skeptical of something and just deciding outright that you're not going to believe certain things. Um, yeah. Oh, what all right, got sorry. Next? Yeah, got a little uh, distracted there. Uh, let's talk about food shortages in Ukraine. Um, on Wednesday, March 30th, Russian forces bombed food warehouses in the city of Brovary uh, in Ukraine, just north of Kiev. Brovary's mayor says the attack destroyed over 50,000 tons of food meant to help people throughout all of Ukraine. And uh, it's important to note, before Russia's invasion, Ukraine was a major source of food for hundreds of millions of people outside of the country. Now... Ukraine is struggling to feed even its own population. So this is the food shortage is not just affecting the people within Ukraine, but in other countries as well. Uh, Meanwhile, Russian forces are blocking any humanitarian support from entering the city of Maripol, threatening to starve out the residents there. So again, siege tactics, starving people. It's not good. Yeah, no, they they uh, ran off with uh, a couple of ships when they captured um, 
uh, some of the port cities, there were some ships with grain that they, they took. And it, it brings back memories of the, I think it was called the Holomador when mm-hmm. it was like in the art of, I mean, there was a famine, but it was compounded and made more, uh, more or less an artificial famine uh, by the Stalin administration right. regime, however you want to call it. And they were starving out Cossacks and Ukrainians, uh, essentially. And they're like, oh, well, we're back to that. Uh, the big difference now is I think the West will you know, send in food and supplies as much as they can. I mean, except in places that are surrounded like Mariupol. Right. Yeah, and that's that's probably the biggest issue is Russia preventing that stuff from happening. Yeah, it's a bummer. Um, and, uh, Ukraine, however, is, uh, you know, getting their own licks in. Uh, Ukrainian intelligence doxes over 600 alleged Russian spies in a big fuck you to Russian intelligence on Monday, March 28th. Ukraine's Defense Intelligence Ministry released a list of the names and related information of 620 people it says are Russian spies working throughout Europe. The list includes names, passport information, and birthdays, and in some cases, license plate numbers and home addresses. In addition, information was leaked from Yandex Food, a food delivery service in Russia. This information includes personal details of Russian security agents, Bellingcat is reporting that the leak has led to several investigations into corruption and also includes information on an apartment leased for Vladimir Putin's secret daughter. So we have that list on our uh, Facebook page. Yes. And uh, (laughs) in the notes for this show, if you go to our website, ciafiles.net, which we just revamped. Uh, in the show notes for this episode, uh, you'll see we'll have all the links to these uh, stories to the, you know, all the various news outlets. I so, use Yandex a lot here. Is it kind of like an Uber Eats or? Yeah. Well, for the most part with Yandex, I just use the taxi. I use a, a different system, which is like Uber Eats. But yeah, yeah. I mean, essentially it's like Uber, Uber Eats and Uber. Um uh, yeah, it's it's convenient. It's a lot more affordable than uh, Uber directly. But I think here in Kazakhstan, Uber and Yandex merged or have some kind of partnership now or something. So, um, but I don't know how if Yandex Kazakhstan, how their corporation is set up. But it was one of the things we were kind of like uh, bellyaching. It's incredibly convenient to use around town and it's like, Oh, if the sanctions shut this down, Oh, and it's like, come on, just, just sell it to the Cossacks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or just like, but I mean, I'll, I'll not take taxis for the sake of, uh, the Ukrainian people. Oh, that's definitely a hit for the team. I'll take. <laughs> You're a hero. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, but it's good. You know, you do what you can. It's not like you can do a lot from where you are. Um, um, I don't rescue.org. I mean, there are, if, if you, anybody's looking for a group to donate to, I strongly, um, suggest them. And 
$500 a month, you can help build a stock of medical tent. Um, I mean, you don't have to get 500 a month. I mean, you give like $20 or something, but, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a good group. Uh, I learned about them back when, uh, like the Syrian refugee crisis, like, um, it's my wife and I both, uh, and when the Syrian war was getting started and we were saying like this refugee, there's going to be a bunch of refugees. This is going to get bad. And it did. And, um, we learned about rescue, uh, .org then because that was their thing is like, uh, they're about to be perhaps a million or more Syrian refugees. It could change the demographics and, you know, cause social unrest. We got to figure something out and well, it, you know, it all came to pass. So, yeah. Um, and I was just looking at information on, uh, Putin's, uh, secret daughter, uh, I'm, I don't think things are going too well for her. She's uh, an 18-year-old Russian socialite named Luzia Krivonogik, which I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Um, back in December, she deleted all of her social media accounts because her uh, her profiles were flooded with people calling her the daughter of the devil, calling her a war criminal and other comments uh, asking her to reach out to Vladimir Putin to try to persuade him to stop the invasion. Um, and it's not, she is just uh, rumored to be Putin's daughter. It's, uh, it's is that the one that like looks just like her? I like him. I don't know. I mean, I see some pictures of her, but I, and I guess maybe there's a, a resemblance, but I, you know, I don't know. Um, but yeah, and she's 18. She's, you know, largely innocent in this, I would assume. So I can't, if this uh, Yandex leak also exposed her address, that's probably a bummer for her. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are other people who've got it much worse, but you know. It's yeah. Um, we also, uh, and another uh, plus for Ukraine, I guess. Um, Moscow is claiming that on Friday, March 30th, Ukrainian forces attacked a fuel depot inside the Russian border in the city of Belgorod. The Ukrainian officials have declined to comment on this to say yes or no. Um, but this is happening as people are trying to work out some level of peace talks. Um, if they are trying to work out peace talks, I'm not sure if this would help or hurt. <laughs> well, this is what I was talking about last week is like, you know, they're firing missiles and stuff from across the border. And it's only a matter of time before like a Reaper drone or something, or in this case, a helicopter, you know, blow something up over there. And the Russians are going to be like, mm, you're being a big meanie. And it's like, well, I mean, what more are the Russians going to do? I mean, of course, I guess, you know, like nuclear war or something, but there we've already got mass graves starving a city out. I mean, they're, 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 they're they're throwing everything at Ukraine right now. I mean, cruise missiles, Iskander missiles, indiscriminate bombing, uh, murder of civilians, landmines. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
was like, oh, but you guys shot into our country and that's not fair. You know, oh, you're, 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 you're right. You know, this, we can't, we can't have a peace talk if you're going to actually shoot back at us on our territory. Remember when we evade you, that's a war about you. <laughs> but now that you attacked us, that's a different war. Oh no. It's like, come on, give me a break. Um, um I, I did I, get a, mm-hmm. go ahead. Sorry. I did get a laugh out of one of the Ukrainian officials who said like, we can't be held responsible for everything that happens in Russia. <laughs> That's a pretty good response. <laughs> yeah. My question is, and I haven't seen any mention of this, and I've actually only seen um, this attack barely mentioned. I found one story in Reuters and then some other stories in some other news sources that I wasn't familiar with. But if this is true, you know, is this, could this possibly trigger the intervention of the a CSTO. CSTO. I think I theoretically could, and I guess that would be the reason for not doing it. But I don't, I don't know. I think yeah. um, the, I haven't seen any mention of it. So um, maybe well, he, it's not they've enough. been. He's Russia's been getting kind of a cold shoulder shoulder from from them. I mean, Armenia is not really happy because the um, Azerbaijanis have been. You know, was it kind of pushing? And Russia's not really done much except to say, stop that. Which, you know, I mean, once you get that blue helmet on, which that's what the Russian troops have there, that's kind of, it seems to be all you're capable of doing is just stop it. And uh, Kazakhstan, they've been sending help to Ukraine. I mean, like humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And uh, yeah, it's, they're, Russia's, I think they're all, the friends they have are China, India, Iran, um, I think Iran, actually, I'm not positive about that, but China, India, Nicaragua, and Cuba, and I think maybe Venezuela, uh, but Venezuela is going to sell them out. They're going to sell us. They're going to sell the West gas. So they're like, well, Russia, we like you and all. You helped us when we were in trouble, but there's money to be made. Right. Affairs of the state must take precedent over affairs of the state. <laughs> um, uh, one more bit of uh, positive news for Ukraine. On Saturday, April 2nd, Ukrainian officials declared that their forces have recaptured the capital city, Kiev. Ukraine has managed to retake much of the territory surrounding Kiev as Russian forces pull back from the area. And Ukrainian officials say that Russian forces have been leaving a trail of landmines behind them as they re- as they retreat, creating a humanitarian nightmare for anyone else who may try to leave or enter the city. And it's a nightmare that will last for a long time because uh, landmines are awful. Yeah, well, it's like in Cambodia. Uh, you go there and there are oh, the, all, all the unexploded bombs that are left behind. Yeah. Well, you see a lot, a lot of people missing limbs, you know, just out farming or, you know, hunting in the woods or whatever and step on a landmine or kids see one and think it's a toy and pick it up. And it's just, yeah, it's awful. Right. I had read about one particular form of landmine that was pressure sensitive, but it didn't go off immediately. It was more that it accumulated, it collected pressure so to speak so 
you jot you jostle it a little bit and that moves it a little bit closer to exploding but you know it takes time and so and it looks like a toy it was like a small thing with wings and so there was talks of children would find them pick them up and then take them home and play with them and they'd explode inside people's homes um, I did see a video on Reddit recently of some Ukrainian badasses who were trying, they were, you know, trying to get down a road and there was a patch of landmines on that. Oh, I didn't see that one. The one I saw was that they were driving their cars like over the landmines, like very carefully avoiding the landmines like getting their wheels in the gaps between the landmines one dude had was pulling a trailer behind their car driving past these landmines and then of course the guy or i say guy i don't know who whoever was filming this on their phone was standing like five feet away from the landmines and i'm like these people have just like no fear (laughs) (laughs) well that 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 might be why they're doing pretty well against the russians i i guess i was i was like wow i would have been filming from as far away as i could get zoomed in as far as much as i could i wouldn't have been near that Uh, (laughs) these guys just kicking them off to the side of the road (laughs) (laughs) wow um Speaking of landmines and humanitarian crises, we have this issue of civilian mass graves. Uh, As Russian forces continue to pull out of some regions of Ukraine, reports have started coming in of mass graves full of civilians who look to have been executed. Uh, Zelensky spokesman uh, Sergei Nikitarov, I, I think I said that right, he said, quote, We found mass graves filled with civilians. We found people with their hands and with their legs tied up and with bullet holes at the back of their heads. They were clearly civilians and they were executed. We found half-burned bodies as if somebody tried to hide the crimes, but actually they didn't have enough time to do it properly. Uh, Now, there is a a UN human rights group inside of Ukraine Uh, And they've been reporting mounting evidence of mass graves in the city of Maripol, including one with over 200 bodies. The team has not released more details yet, as they say their investigation is ongoing. So far, the group has reported almost 1,100 civilian deaths in Ukraine. But they say that number is probably much higher as uh, they haven't been able to get much information yet on casualties in Maripol. I I think that we're going to... Um, the civilian casualties, I think, right now are probably at a minimum 5,000. Um, they'll probably end up being greater than the military casualties if this keeps going as it's going. But I don't know. Actually, maybe not because uh, the casualty rates have been pretty high. But it's hard to know. I mean, it's hard to know. Um, right. There's the fog of war thing yeah. going on where it's and it's hard to know whose numbers to trust because uh, the Russian sources are going to give one set of numbers. Ukrainian sources are going to give yeah. another set that you have the UN people in there. So, yeah, we yeah. probably won't know the true extent until 
the dust has settled, but right now it doesn't look good. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so the casualty rates are like World War II level. That's, yeah, it's pretty intense. And you mentioned something, I didn't see the stories on it, but you mentioned something about uh, confessions from Russian uh, POWs. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a video of a, a Russian fellow, and um, he was saying, look, we're being we're being lied to. Um, Putin said, we're going to fight fascists, but we're the fascists here. And um, he's like crying um, while he's talking. And Okay, like, yeah. We... I've we've I've seen several reports like that of Russian soldiers afterwards saying that they didn't really understand what they were going into, and you know, yeah, and uh, he's like, uh, you know, all the <clears throat> other people of Russia need to learn about this. They need to to get this. And one of the things that kind of frustrates me is people complaining about the Ukrainians showing it. And they're saying, oh, well, this is a forced confession. You can't believe it. Or this is a war crime. You can't, you can't show, show that. You can't um, you know, show a person in public that's humiliating them. And it's like, well, what if he wanted to? I mean, that, to me, that's up there with you liberate a concentration camp and you have one of the guards in the SS. It's like, yeah, I did it. And I... I think we've been we've been kind of lying about what's been going on here. We've we've told our people that, oh yeah yeah, we shipped people off to the east to like a new home, but really we put them here and we've been killing them and working them to death. And yeah, I want to I want to go on television and say that. It's like oh no no, we can't have you do that. That would be making a spectacle of you. We can't. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, we can take a statement and publish it as a byline. Like, come on, like the, the whole like war crime aspect of making someone a spectacle is like, if it's the point is to humiliate them or, you know, degrade them. And I don't think that was the point, you know, of right. like showing. Now, if they were like truly coercing the fellow, that's a different story. Um, but as long as like they weren't coercing him and I mean, there are questions of like, well, if you're a prisoner, do, can you really make any choice for yourself? You know, cause you don't have a power dynamic, but again, right. I would kind of go back to, all right. An SS guard was captured. <laughs> he is yeah, a prisoner. And also, but <laughs> at what point do we, do we like the, it has to, I don't know. I don't understand war crime law, obviously, but at what point is it compared to the war crimes that Russia is committing right now? You know, how do you, I mean, you... I think they're pretty, pretty close right now. I mean, we don't, we don't have uh camps that we know of. Um, well, I just you... mean, as far as comparing the war crime of executing civilians and burning their bodies versus the war crime of publishing a statement from a prisoner of war. <laughs> right. Or a video of you right. Know, right. Like one of yeah. these things is not like the other. And like <laughs> you said, if they had him out there and they were humiliating him, using him to, or, just, you know, just in general being terrible to the, to the prisoner of war. And that's one thing, but if they're showing what he's saying that 
You know what I mean? Like he's making a confession. He's talking about what they were told and what they've been doing. He's giving valuable information <laughs> that right. like his people should know. His country people should know. Yeah, the moral equivocation is is frustrating. It's like, yeah, oh, hey, you, you know, you just shot a bunch of civilians in the back of the head, but but you just recorded someone and put them on t- TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we're going to talk about one other thing here. Russia's future ambitions. Uh, Russia and China's foreign ministers met Wednesday, March 30th, to discuss future plans together. The talks initially were meant to discuss uh, the future of their involvement with Afghanistan. But of course, you know, the talks are going to go further than that. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov released a video ahead of the meeting saying, unironically, quote, we, together with you and with our sympathizers, will move towards a multipolar, just, democratic world order. And he had a straight uh, face, right? I believe so. He did not laugh when he said that. I, get, I don't know which of the, these statements is funnier. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi said in a statement from state media, quote, China-Russia relations have withstood the new test of the changing international situation, maintained the correct direction of progress, and shown tenacious development momentum. A Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesman also said, our striving for peace has no limits, our uploading of security has no limits, our opposition towards hegemony has no limits. So... Is that projection? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> well, yeah, they, yeah, they just, they just don't want one particular group to have all the power. Um, which, I mean, I can understand if that um, was, you know, but if that's that, it, not. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that if the ac- their actions supported that claim, then that's not a bad claim to make. But uh, you know, well, also if the um, what was it hegemony. Is it hegemony or hegemony? Hegemony that they're yes. they're fighting is one that is promoting, um, like liberal democracy. I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> but at well, the same time, you've got the other side where it's like, well, is the West really promoting liberal democracy, or are they really just to say, promoting capitalism? Some, you know, there's a, <laughs> so, there's some honest skepticism to be applied <laughs> to that statement yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the West and their promotion of democracy. Right? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because we don't we haven't been discussing much as far as United States involvement in foreign things lately just because the big news of russia you know that ukraine has kind of dominated things but yeah the united states and the west in general they have a they've got a long history of talking out of their ass when it comes to promoting democracy via talking versus promoting democracy via actions you know the the russian and chinese party line both are that the, the war is the U.S.'s fault for it was the U.S. and our secret agents that caused the color revolutions and the maiden protest in 2014. 
that oh they they everybody was getting along and between Ukraine and Russia and because of American interference oh that's why everyone went out and protested and if there's a protest against something that you like then it was obviously started by the CIA right. every protest that protests you or your friends was started by the CIA. Yeah. I well, mean, every, that's just fact. Yeah. That's well, just, I mean, every good lie is going to have a grain of truth. Like, right, I mean, because the CIA does have a history of fomenting protests to further their own goals. But yeah, that's that, what we were talking about earlier, the skepticism versus cynicism. Right. And confirmation bias. You can't forget that little chestnut. Well, it'd be like saying, um, January, the January 6th happened because it, it was staged by Russia. And it's like, well, I mean, the Russians have been providing support for some far right elements um, that were there for January 6th. But Russia didn't do that. Right. But, you know, and I'm, it's highly likely that the U.S., was, you know, in giving support and encouragement and guidance to um, groups. But at the same time, I don't even think it was necessarily shady. If we are trying to promote liberal democracy, then we are going to promote liberal democratic parties and try to help them in that general direction. And so... Okay, those were the same people that were protesting, or some of them were the same people that were protesting. There's a big difference in providing a little bit of support for a political party and then funding a mass coup. <laughs> you know, right. All right. Yeah, that, those are our headlines for the day. And now on to our weird file. Uh, I'm just calling it Weird File for now because I still haven't thought of a better name for this segment. But today we're going to look at the insane story of Project Pluto, a.k.a. the Flying Crowbar. As the United States and the Soviet Union started ramping up their arms race after World War II, U.S. military leaders became worried about Soviet anti-aircraft technology. They wondered if it was possible to make a bomber that could operate without a pilot kicking off a path of technological advancement that would lead to the one part of former President Barack Obama's time in office that he really doesn't like to talk about. Uh, quick aside for you, Obama stands. Google CIA double tap strikes. Uh, and the military leaders said, while we're at it, can we make something that can stay in the air indefinitely? Uh, the answer, as usual, was let's throw some cash at the problem and see what happens. And so in 1957, the top nerds at the Pentagon got to work developing yet another unspeakable horror with which to protect capitalism and that oh-so-exceptional Western way of life. Thus was born Project Pluto. So they decided that ramjets offered the best the best method for keeping Pluto in the air indefinitely. Ramjets are a form of propulsion that draw in air, heat it, and then push it out the back. And so in order to power Pluto, 
the ambitious nerds decided to harness a new form of energy that was all the rage at the time, atomic power. Uh, a small nuclear reactor built into Pluto could theoretically power the plane forever, or at least until after it, it had killed everyone on the planet. And, you know, after that, who cares how long it kept flying? Of course, designing this abomination unto the Lord was no easy feat. An article from Merkel.com describes these challenges. Pneumatic motors necessary to control the reactor in flight had to operate while red hot and in the presence of intense radioactivity. The need to maintain supersonic speed at low altitude and in all kinds of weather meant that Pluto's reactor had to survive conditions that would melt or disintegrate the metals used in most jet and rocket engines. Engineers calculated that the aerodynamic pressures upon the missile might be five times those the hypersonic X-15 had to endure. Pluto was pretty close to the limits in all respects, says Ethan Platt, an engineer who worked on the project. We were tickling the dragon's tail all the way, says Blake Myers, head of Livermore's propulsion engineering division. So the engineers decided to incorporate ceramics to replace many of the metal alloys that would melt under the intense heat. So they commissioned a ceramics manufacturer by the name of Adolf Coors, who made ceramic vats for beer brewers to make parts for Pluto. Adolf Coors, of course, went on to inspire the greatest film ever made, Smokey and the Bandit. Engineers also incorporated other unexpected materials into the flying crowbar uh, from that Merkel.com article. After a number of exotic materials had been tried and found wanting as a coating for electric motor armatures, engineers found that exhaust manifold paint obtained through an ad in Hot Rod magazine worked perfectly. When assembling the reactor, the lab's wizards cleverly held support springs in place with mothball spacers, which evaporated after serving their purpose. Now, at the time, nuclear power was being sold to the public as a fantastic new source of limitless energy that would power not just submarines and power plants, but everything from your car to your toaster. But this promise failed to factor in one small hiccup, radiation. However, if your goal is to kill filthy communists, this is a feature, not a bug. Not only could the flying crowbar stay in the air indefinitely, tossing out hydrogen bombs like a murderous Santa Claus, but it would theoretically travel so low and so fast that the shockwave itself would kill people and destroy structures on the ground. What's more, the trail of radiation left behind this modern marvel would kill anyone who ventured into the wake of the missile for years afterwards. Another quote from the Merkel article. Pluto's namesake was Roman mythology's ruler of the underworld, seemingly an apt inspiration for a locomotive-sized missile that would travel at near treetop level at three times the speed of sound, tossing out hydrogen bombs as it roared overhead. Pluto's designers calculated that its shockwave alone might kill people on the ground. Then there was the problem of fallout. In addition to gamma and neutron radiation from the unshielded reactor, Pluto's nuclear ramjet would spew fission fragments out in its, in its exhaust as it flew by. 
One enterprising weaponeer had a plan to turn an obvious peacetime liability into a wartime asset. He suggested flying the radioactive rocket back and forth over the Soviet Union after it had dropped its bombs. Researchers spent unimaginable resources and an unspeakable amount of money on Project Pluto before anyone actually considered how terrible of an idea it was. Military leaders realized that, in order to avoid detection, the flying crowbar would have to travel at low altitude over U.S. allies before it reached any valuable targets. Considering this thing generated a deadly shockwave and left a wake of atomic death behind, the generals thought maybe our allies might get a little miffed at us. <laughs> so Project Pluto was shut down on July 1st, 1967. It only took the government seven and a half years to decide not to irradiate everyone who happened to be between the United States and the dirty, godless communists. That project wasn't a total waste, though, as many of the materials and methods that came out of the development are still used in other things today, like ceramic turbines and space-based reactors. Uh, so it wasn't all bad. Not only did the project create some new technologies, it created some beautiful memories for the nerds involved. From Merkel.com, for some at Livermore, a lingering nostalgia about Pluto remains. It was the best six years of my life, says William Moran, who oversaw the production of the Tory fuel elements. Chuck Barnett, who directed the Tory tests, succinctly sums up the gung-ho spirit at the lab. I was young. We had lots of money. It was very exciting. <laughs> so, well, I mean, that, that, that being young with lots of money, that in and of itself is very exciting. Yes. Uh, well, there are, I guess there are two points of this story uh, I'd like to make. Like The first one is uh, sociologically, that was this time of great optimism. Because we had this like nuclear energy, and it's like, oh, we're going to be able to power everything, and right, and atoms for peace, right. <laughs> and it's also when behaviorism, the psychological theory, gets kicked. Uh, it's really kicked off, and it's mixing up with game theory, mathematics, and there's this optimism that the social sciences can be turned into something like hard sciences, and and we can actually. This Sorry, I was going to ask, is this like uh, Eric Burns transactional theory and stuff like that? Actually, I'm not familiar with Eric Burns. Oh, he, he kind of he's kind of credited with starting game theory. Oh, I'm thinking of oh, Nash. I was thinking of Nash. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking um, not not uh, he plays into game theory. Uh, I know Nash you're talking about Eric Byrne. Uh, came up with uh, a, a game theory adjacent system called transactional analysis. Um, anyway, sorry. Go well, ahead. It, yeah. I mean, it'll be along those lines. I mean, this, there's this idea that human behavior at its end is rational and can be predicted. Uh, maybe it's based on self-interest. Uh, but if you know the variables, then you can, you know, predict human behavior and perhaps we can teach people to be nicer because we can learn to control the behavior, uh, the variables that create behavior. Computer science too, you know, that 
you know, oh, we're going to be able to have computers and computers are going to be able to figure out our problems themselves because they can run algorithms and uh, we can feed our behaviorist knowledge in there and eventually our technology and will be able to free us from work and we're going to have a less than 20 hour work week and robots can do everything for us. Hooray. But our utopia has become kind of a dystopia. Right. I mean, our, our world has gotten wealthier and a lot of it is through the advancements in technology. You know, when you look at like the Soviet union and how someone living in the Soviet Union in the 1930s versus the 1970s and how their life would be better. It would, a lot of it had to do with technology and right. kind of the same in the U.S. And so, you know, producing more, having good tech. And we haven't had, you know, dealing with the negative effects of the technology like the pollution is is its own, its own matter. But the this hasn't worked out. Nuclear energy hasn't saved us. We've not been able to predict human behavior as well as we thought. Um, you know, this sort of like scientific viewpoint on humanity eh, hasn't really worked out. And that's part of the reason that we seem to see this return to fundamentalism, like a return to religion. Is, right. Oh, you were saying that last yeah. week. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it plays into that, like all this great optimism and promise. And then. Yeah. Um, and the other, some, mm-hmm. I was just going to say that uh, going on uh, discussing what you were talking about, there's some really good documentaries by Adam Curtis, uh, BBC documentaries. Although I think Adam Curtis kind of, he's a divisive figure. Some people love his documentaries. Some people don't like them very much, but he has uh, a couple. There's one from, I believe 2016, called hypernormalization and then another one from just a couple years ago called can't get you out of my head and he discusses what you're talking about in there and like the sort of social reaction to you know the promises that were made via technology and how that's played out um so yeah just plug in those things i think they're really great well, yeah, I mean, with that, it, it does kind of segue into the second point is like economically, like so many of our technological developments came from government spending. Right. And Tang. I mean, yeah, Tang. Tang. Well, I think uh, Unix, like with the basis of Windows, you know, that came from government research and, you know, government funding, uh, the GPS system, Teflon, uh, even fracking. You know, like, oh, fracking oil. Uh, that was the U.S. government helped pay for that research because it wasn't, it was going to cost too much to try to be profitable. And I mean, I get a right. big, I mean, what I find ironic is like the same lobbyists and politicians who openly embrace the government giving them money to research um, fracking for extracting oil. When you start saying, oh, well, maybe we need to, you know, use some of that, that, research money for windmills or something or and it's like no 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 that's socialism no we can't have that and it's like we want socialism for us but for any other thing it's free market hard knocks it either lives or dies on its own so right (laughs) you know it's like well uh 
So, uh, you know, to, to defend like the hardcore libertarians, they would say, well, the, you know, the uh, oil companies shouldn't have got that fracking money. And so then, yeah, those things would have lived and died by themselves. But at the same time, I think, you know, just like a defense is a worthwhile investment, so is cleaner air. You know, so is not right. needing oil from another nation that, you know, invades others with the profits of its oil money. That's, right. you know, that is a defense issue. And right. Especially when so much of the money spent on or earmarked for defense, you you could say that it was spent on quote unquote defense <laughs> right? You know, when it's not actually, you know, money that goes to private security firms to do jobs that U.S. soldiers could be doing. Uh, <laughs> that's, I mean, that gets into a whole other, huh. whole other topic, but yeah. Well, the, the military gets to be uh, shielded for like, they get this blanket inefficiency. Like I, I don't, I don't want to waste money on kind of silly research, but some, some research is boring, but still necessary. Like a lot of research that will help people comes from boring things, uh, like you know cell replication and stuff, or um, you know even how mice might react to, to certain situations. What you know, I can't really think of a good specific example. Um, but yeah, you ask for you know research into something that's kind of boring, and oh no no no, but building the next generation fighter jet when we're already three generations ahead, you know, like, is, mm, is that, is that necessary? Right. You know? And in stuff, in, in those cases too, I think a lot of that spending is motivated by politicians who are trying to bring lucrative government contracts to their States. Yeah. You know, I mean, which I understand, but come I on. I mean, I'm why? not saying that's a good reason. Yeah. It's not a good reason for it. I mean, why can't the people that are making tanks make buses or something, you know, or railroads? <laughs> How many people can you kill with a bus, Brandon? Uh, well, How many? Uh, uh, it depends on what's Not in the as, bus. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you start tweaking it to optimize this murder efficiency, and then you end up with military vehicles so just skip the bus go uh, straight to the murder machine maybe that's that's what the um the people wanting public transport should do they should hide what the research is really for it's kind of like the opposite you know like in the movies or something oh this funding is for like building a bridge but it's really going to like alien research we need to the like the really leftists in Congress need to work out some deal where they're that saying, exists. sorry, <laughs> sorry to interrupt. I, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Oh no, I, I see what you're saying. Like, <laughs> let's say we're that we're developing, uh, uh, automatic assault rifles for civilians when the money's actually going into public transportation. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you just put pictures of assault rifles on, the, on the transportation and, yeah, <laughs> it all works out. Yeah. Well, uh, that's anyway. That's our that's our show, folks. I hope that we've left you in a good mood, ready to take on the week <laughs> with renewed 
lust for life. Beware of flying Pluto or radiation death machine. Holy crap. Just it, 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 reading about Project Pluto, it just sounds like somebody came up with like a crazy idea and then they put engineers onto it and the engineers weren't really thinking about the morality of it. They're just like, Oh crap. I wonder if we can do this. And it just turns into not their job to think of the morality of it. (laughs) It's their job to see if it can be done. Right. (laughs) So anyway, um, yeah. I hope right. you guys are doing great. Um, maybe go look at some kittens, listen to yeah. some uh, some uh, uplifting music. Go um, watch some fun TV. Check out our check out our Facebooks and all that good stuff. Check out our socials. Our you know facebook.com slash CIA files, uh, Twitter, Instagram at CIA files podcast. Got the website up and running and we're going to be developing more on there you can go there at uh, ciafiles.net where you can also find links to stories talking about the stuff we've talked about today and remember to give us rates reviews we love that stuff if you feel generous stop by our threadless shop and pick yourself up a t-shirt or a mug yeah, the coffee mugs are, are cute. Yeah. And in the meantime, um, oh, our episode, our second part of the story of Jim Angleton is coming out Thursday. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And in the meantime, you know, take it sleazy. <laughs> Over and out. <laughs> <laughs>